0: Good to see everybody today, and again, happy Thanksgiving to you. Welcome home. <laughs> Hope that you had a great one with uh, family, friends, or at least with a turkey, okay? And so we are um, so happy um, to be here worshiping with you today, again, celebrating the beginning of our Advent season together. And so we are um, excited and excited people as we go into the Advent season. Uh, Not only are we celebrating the first coming of Jesus Christ, but we're also always looking forward to his second coming. Amen. Okay, that is part of the good news of Jesus Christ, right? That not only did he come once, but he's coming again and he's coming not to die for sins, but to save those who've been patiently waiting for him. And so we're going to talk today um, as we uh, continue our series Uh, The Good News According to Luke, about the posture that we should have as we are in this time of waiting. I'll just give you a little bit of a preview um, as we go into our Christmas season together. Um, We have a very special guest, uh, many of you remember, Pastor Corey Bendix from our church in uh, D.C. Uh, He is our outreach pastor who runs our Grace Loves um, outreach to the community. Um, He will be with us uh, next week uh, to uh, minister the Word of God to us, and then we are going to, after... that, begin our official Christmas series called While You Were Sleeping. Oh, yes. (laughs) Okay, so I'm excited about um, that. Thank you, buddy. Um, So today we are um, going to be in Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, which as we begin the Advent season, and God's sovereignty, I believe, is the perfect scripture for um, getting our heart right and posturing us appropriately for not just the first coming of Christ, which we're celebrating, but also his second. And so just to let you know, if you're unfamiliar with the Word of God and you're unfamiliar with the Scripture, there are some um, passages that have a flow to them, meaning it's connected thoughts, right? Going according to one theme together in the Scripture, right? Like we talked about last week, it was almost a collective thought that Jesus had in that chapter going through a particular theme. This week, though, it's a little bit different. It's broken up into individual thoughts, right? So when we're talking about the different themes, that we're going to create today, we're, cre- we're creating the theme today. It's individual thoughts that Jesus is having, but it's a theme that we're creating all in the hopes of having our hearts postured appropriately, not for the first coming, but the second coming of Christ. And so our focus today is going to be this, that we will find Christ's power and joy when we find the right posture in our hearts before him. And how many people could say amen to that? OK, we will find Christ's power and joy when we find the right posture in our hearts before him. because if Christmas season is anything, it should be a joyous time. Amen. OK, well, I'm going to celebrate for you and me. OK, it should be a joyous time. And so we're going to talk about that today with having the right faith. Number two, the right attitude and then number three, the rightful ruler in our hearts. OK. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us today. And God, we're praying that as we posture our hearts appropriately to celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ, not only celebrating his first advent, but also posturing our hearts for his second. God, may you fill us with great joy and may we experience your power, your freedom, your deliverance and your good news in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, so let's start by talking about the right faith. You've got the right faith, baby. Yeah, come on. You're, you're, all right, so, all right, all right. So, listen. Some of you need to listen to iTunes. <laughs> the right faith, <laughs> the type of faith that God provides, gives grace to overcome sin, and literally causes mountains to move in our lives. How many people can say Amen to that? Helps us to overcome sin and literally enables mountains to move in our lives. Luke chapter seventeen. Jesus starts with these thoughts. He said, and he said to his disciples, "Temptations to sin are sure to come. They're just sure to come, and that's the truth. No matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, anybody been surprised before by the temptations that you've experienced?" thought you were over something, and then all of a sudden something pops up again. It's like, ah! <laughs> they're bound to come, Jesus said. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It's not a matter of if they come, are coming, but he says, make sure you're not the one through whom they're coming. Okay? It would be better, why? Because for him to, if a millstone, and a millstone was one of those large stone rolly things (laughs) that they used to drag with a donkey to crush the grain in their agricultural society, right? So they needed to break it up and grind it into something that would be palpable. And so there was a large stone that the donkeys would drag and it would crush the grain into something edible. And he said it would be better. It would be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. He says "Sins, the things that cause sin are bound to come, but don't be the one through whom they come. Pay attention to yourselves. That's just a good exhortation, right? Pay attention to how you live. Pay attention to the things you're agreeing with. Pay attention to the things you're endorsing. Pay attention to the things that people are assuming you're in agreement with when maybe you're not. Pay attention to yourselves. And if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Anybody say, that's hard, Lord. That's okay, he says, I've given you power. (laughs) Power to do such things. The apostle said, on the heels of such a command, Lord, increase our faith. If that's the way you expect us to live, increase our faith. Increase our trust in you. Increase our understanding that you've given me something beyond myself to do that which you've commanded me to do. Isn't that what he's saying here? God, I need something other than little old me to do that which you're saying to do. And the Lord said to him, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed. Am I ever seen a mustard seed before? Tiny. Right? It's like if you've ever tried to pick one up in your hands, right, you're, you lose it if, you don't, if you're not careful. Right, It's like all you have to do is like this and it's gone. If you have faith as small as that, he said, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And it would obey you. That is the type of faith that God's calling you to. That is the type of faith that God's called you to even when he gives you commands that are difficult at times to obey. Do you know that you live this life in God by faith in not your ability but in his? Because the hope of glory is Christ in you. It's Christ in you. That if you are born again, if you are a believer in the living God, Emmanuel, who is God with us, then what that means is that you've got a power beyond your own ability. And what you're doing literally is day by day, you are like an an electrical cord that's being plugged into an outlet to give light to the room in which you find yourself. But the light in and of itself has the capacity to illuminate the room, but it is not the generator of that light. It is necessary that the plug be put into the wall so that it connects to the electrical current so that it has a power to do what it has the potential to do. And in the same way, God is saying, though I've called you to such a life, I'm telling you, here is the truth. You cannot do it on your own. You cannot do it on your own. When people offend you, when people violate you, when people come against you again and again and again. And I'm not just talking about outside in the broader world as we know it. I'm talking about how many people know that sometimes Thanksgiving dinners can be hard. Right? Uh, anybody, anybody ever have discussions with the beloved ones at the table? And it got a, it wasn't the, the turkey that was hot, it was the conversation that was hot. Anybody before, Right? And anybody been offended by the ones you love? And he's saying, listen, if somebody sins against you, right? Not once, not twice, because in this Jewish culture, it was considered honorable if you at least pardon somebody, maybe twice, maybe three times at most, right? Lionel Richie, once, twice, (laughs) three times, Right? And all of a sudden, he's like, no, not three times, and then you're done. Anybody ever told yourself before you have a limit? If you do it one more time. Anybody ever pointed somebody like that before? You didn't even say anything. You were like, one more time, and then we're done. But Jesus says, if anyone comes to you, your brother comes to you up to seven times in a day, and says, I repent, meaning that I'm sorry, I made a mistake, I'm turning away from that sin, I'm asking you to forgive me, and I'm going in a different direction. He says, you must, not might, not should, but must forgive them if you belong to him. And how many people know that takes faith? That takes faith, that I'm tapping into an ability to a hard posture beyond myself. And when Jesus is talking about if you had faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and thrown into the sea. How many people know that Jesus isn't concerned about us having power to literally uproot physical objects and have them flying around in the atmosphere? (laughs) He's not just having it. Can I tell you, admittedly, that's what I tried when I first became a Christian. I would go out into the city and I'd be like, in the name of Jesus, move! (laughs) And I was like, wait a minute, why isn't it moving? Because it wasn't in the will of God. But let me tell you what is in the will of God, forgiveness. Let me tell you what is in the will of God, reconciliation. Let me tell you what is in the will of God, not being bound by offense and actually having the power to live differently and not being subject to the sin of others. If somebody sins against you, how many people know that you can end up in sin if you allow their sin against you to define your life? Have I ever had that happen before? Somebody sinned against you, and then you got so angry at their sin against you that you began sinning in your words, in your attitudes, in your actions, right? And this is why Jesus says the answer to it is not to let their sin define you, but if your brother sins against you, do what? Do something about it. Rebuke him. Say, uh, can I bring something up? <laughs> And I bring something up. That was wrong. And if he repents, do what? Forgive him. So you don't let sin go unaddressed when somebody sins against you, right? Let me tell you, that's not Christian either. Everybody understand that? Just overlooking whatever people want to do against you or others, it doesn't make that Christian. You don't need to be an enabler to be Christian. When somebody sins, he says, rebuke them, correct them with the word of God, not your anger, not your own opinions, not your preferences or your own thoughts. But by faith, you say, God has a better way. I'm calling you to it. And if he repents, forgive him as often as he comes to you and asks for forgiveness. But you do it by faith. Why? Because the same forgiveness that we walk in on a daily basis is the same forgiveness that we should offer to others. How many people can say amen to that? Because God's forgiven us for so many things, He says you are obligated to forgive others, but you need to do it by faith. Sin is serious to God and destroys ultimately relationships with Him and others. And because sin is so serious to God, not only those who practice it, but those who promote it will be judged severely. So what we want to do is, as we're posturing our heart appropriately for the coming of Christ, we want to make sure we have an appropriate response to sin, both in our life and to others, and make sure we're not the cause of sin in anyone else's life. Don't be a stumbling block in anyone else's life. Amen? Number two, we need the right attitude. The type of attitude that the Holy Spirit provides is a humility and gratitude that sets our hearts free. How many people know that humility and gratitude will ultimately set our hearts free? Humility and gratitude. When we don't think we deserve something, but instead have a right posture before God to thankfully receive that which he's giving us. Luke 17, starting in verse 7, Jesus continued to speak. He says, will any one of you, (laughs) will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now how many people know that cuts against the modern American attitude. (laughs) Saying, I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done my duty. What God's expressing here is that ultimately he's the creator, the ruler, the benevolent judge of all the earth, and he owes us nothing. Isn't that the truth? Okay, hold on now. Remember that quote we ended with last week talking about if it's unmerited grace and there's nothing that he can't ask of me? Anybody remember that? If you didn't hear the message last week, just go online, look at that quote. This is the following the same train of thought. When we are serving God, he owes us nothing. And on the way to Jerusalem, continue the scripture, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest, which was basically the tradition of what they did whenever they were receiving healing from God. The Levitical commandment was go show yourself to the priest and he will tell you that you're healed, right? He would judge the leprous, the skin disease on you and he would tell you if you were healed and needed to be reintroduced to society. And as they went, they were cleansed. It says, and as they went, they were cleansed. Everybody say that with me. And as they went, they were cleansed. So Jesus said, hey, listen, do what I'm saying to do, and as you go, you'll be cleansed. Get that? And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan, not one of the Jews, but what they called one of the mixed breeds, right? So they had a mixed faith, a little pluralistic thing, right, going on. But he had a wake-up call that Jesus had done something for him, and so he came back and thanked him. And then Jesus answered him, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give thanks or praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And how many people know that if we stay around Jesus long enough, we can actually be not like the Samaritan, but like the other nine who got healed but never go back to give God thanks. And we end up bound in our souls because we develop an entitlement mentality that God somehow owes me something because I've been here a while. But what God's saying is, I owe my people nothing. I've given them everything, and it's been by grace alone. What we actually deserve because of our sin is death and hell. Everybody understand that in here? Because of our sin before God, what every person, you, me, and every smiling face around us deserves is death and hell. What he's chosen to give us Through the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, his sinless life, his miracles, his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead is an opportunity to have new life and eternal life in him. That's what's called grace, giving us what we don't deserve. It's experiencing God's mercy, God withholding from us what we actually deserve. Everybody with me on this? And so what God's saying is, in light of this, understand that he owes us nothing. He owes us what we are owed is death and hell. What he's given us in Jesus is an opportunity at repentance, forgiveness of sins, and new life, eternal life to boot in him. Isn't that good news? So what he's looking for in response is two things. Number one, humility, and then number two, some gratitude. An attitude of humility, and then number two, some gratitude. Saying, God, you owe me nothing. I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done my duty when I'm stewarding my time, my talent, and my resources in the way that you've commanded me. I'm only doing my duty. God, I am thankful that you want to heal me, and I'm thankful that you have healed me up to the point that you already have. I may have a long way to go. Anybody like me have a long way to go in the healing that you need? Still need some healing? But how many people know that you can be thankful for what he's already given you? You can go back and say thank you for what you've already done, which prepares a platform for the future healing that he wants to give you. Make sense? But if we're always talking about what we don't have, then it cuts off the attitude of humility and gratitude that opens the way for him to complete that healing. Let's break it down a little bit. Those sons and daughters of God, through Christ, our posture should continually be of humble servants to Almighty God. Anybody just say amen to that with me. We are simultaneously a son or a daughter As well as, if I say as well as, As as. a servant of the king, a friend, as well as, if I say as well as again, a submitted follower, a slave to righteousness, as well as a co-heir with Christ. See, those aren't mutually exclusive things, they actually work together, right? Right? Anybody in here have mutual, like multiple identities in and of yourself, even as you sit here today? What am I? I am, I was born a what? Son. I was born a son to the Fisher family, right? I grew up a little bit, and then I became a husband. But because I became a husband, does that make me no longer a son? No, I'm a son and a husband. And then we had a little love, and then all of a sudden I became a father. Father. Right? I became a father. But did that make me no longer a husband? No, you better believe it. (laughs) It's sort of like, I'm always going to be a husband. All right, so it's sort of like, I'm going to be a husband and a father simultaneously, right? In the same way with God, so many people have tried to adopt this idea of, well, I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. He calls me, right? And then they forget that they're a servant. They talk about being a son or a daughter and think that they're no longer obligated to be a slave to righteousness. But they work simultaneously with one another and one doesn't excuse the other in our relationship with him. And the truth of the matter is is that when the lepers wanted to receive their healing, it was not enough to take Jesus at his word. The lepers needed to do what he said. Remember, it said that as they went, they were healed. So Jesus said to do something. He said, this is the access that I'm giving you to your healing. Do what I say, and then you'll be healed. So many people are like, listen, I agree with your word, God. Why am I still stuck in my sin? I agree with your word, God. Why am I still down? I agree with your word, God. Why am I not able to experience all that the Bible talks about? Well, he said, did you do what I said? How about this? Let's just go back to the sin issue. Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, do something about it. He said, if your hand causes you to sin, do what? Chop it off. off." That's right. Come on. Thanksgiving. Chopping block. You know, it's like, listen, if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your eyes cause you to sin, do what? Douge them out. It would be better for you to go into eternal life maimed, he said, than to have your whole body thrown into hell. Now, obviously, Jesus is not talking about the physically take out your eyes or chop off your hands, but he's talking about the access to the things that cause the sin, right? But he says, as they went, they were healed. Are we doing what he said so that we can be healed in humility and gratitude? Always remember that faith and obedience are God's recipe for experiencing God's power moving on our behalf. So often we want healing but don't follow God's instructions and wonder why we remain in the same spot even while even when rather we believe that he can heal us. And the truth is is that lack of gratitude leads to a lack of joy in our lives. God says rejoice in him always again he says rejoice, right? When he's done something for you, come back and thank him for it. How many people know that that would actually set us free from some of the bitterness that we live under Mm -hmm. on a daily basis if if we actually rejoiced in him and actually took time to thank him for that which he's already done for us? Anybody agree with that? Mm -hmm. That if I start off of my, not in my heart, but off of my lips, start thanking him daily for the things that he's already done for me, it will set some of the bondage in my own heart free. That I'll heal you if you do what I say. The question is, in what ways have we been steal- like the lepers, not the one, but the nine, stealing glory from God? And in what ways do we, like the Samaritan, need to find the joy of our salvation by learning to thank God for all that he's already done, things both big and small? Things both big and small. Because we're in a time of, as Pastor Cole was talking about, waiting. Now Jesus, whenever he was talking about his kingdom, was talking about a present kingdom and a coming kingdom. When Jesus showed up on the scene, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. How many people know that that wasn't the fullness of all that he was going to do? So Jesus is always talking about, listen, I have a present and a coming kingdom. A present reality which is a foretaste of that which I'm going to ultimately do, and something that I'll ultimately fulfill in my second coming, right? So I started it, but I'm going to complete it. And this is how Jesus ends it here. Number three, we need to have the rightful ruler in our life, and the type of redemption that God provides is complete and is realized when we fully surrender to Jesus as Lord. Having him as the rightful ruler in our lives. Chapter 17, verse 20. It says, being asked by the Pharisees, When the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Right? So he's talking about the kingdom, the glories of God's eternal reign and rule not only in people's lives, but all over the planet itself. So this is more declarative. And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, which was Jesus' favorite nomenclature for himself, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus was born, ultimately, to, to go to that cross and die. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So that's declarative, right? He's declaring something. How many people know that this isn't usually what people meditate on in their devotions? (laughs) Let me think. Will I be the one in the bed or the other? Nobody's thinking about that, right? But they should. Because what Jesus is saying here is ultimately, it's not just about the first Advent, it's there's going to be a second Advent, a second coming. And when will it come? It will be coming at a time when we're not expecting Jesus is saying business will be going on as usual. Anybody ever get caught up in the rigmarole of everyday life? Sort of like you get up, you go through clockwork, you know, all the routines that you daily have. There's a mundanity to life as we know it, right? And Jesus says in the midst of that mundanity, when people are going to work, going and getting married, when they're actually going about their business, he said in the midst of that time, when people aren't expecting it, then he's going to come. He's going to make his second advent. And so the posture that we should have is ultimately live ready. Live ready, right? Live with the right faith, live with the right attitude, and live in expectation of his coming. Where every day you're looking at the door saying, listen, Lord, is today the day. Is today the day that you're actually coming to bring your people home. Anybody have dogs in here? Anybody a dog lover in here? No? Okay, we're in Chicago. Listen, it's like, it's like look, what I love about the dogs. I'm not necessarily a dog. I don't have the T-shirts. I don't have my own personal bag where I carry my dog around. Okay? But listen, I love the fact that my dog, it's not even my dog, but Mercy's dog loves her. <laughs> okay? And I'm telling you, she goes ballistic. When she comes home from school, ballistic, I'm talking about literally will knock me down to get to her. And I'm like, listen, this is my house. I'm not trying to get knocked down by you. Right. And all of a sudden she's like, listen, right. Because like all the noises, all the licking, you know, she'll even come and, you know, jump on somebody else and say, oh, you're not mercy. And like, go like, you know what I mean? Go to find her. Right. That is the daily routine. She loves her. And she waits at that door, looking for when she's going to return. Why? Because her world is made complete when mercy comes home. Doesn't matter how everybody else did in the day, walking her, picking up after her in the city. And I find that odd? Come on, now. I come from country, land, Go out in the field, do all your business, and come back in the city. You got to pick up after. Do- anyway, strange to me. But the point is, it's all about mercy. And the point is, is that when she comes home, her world's made complete. Do you know two people who entered the promised land? Let me just give you an Old Testament reference. Two pe- people that entered the promised land were Joshua and Caleb. The rest died out in the wilderness because they were grumbling, complaining, not putting their faith in Jesus and ultimately God's purpose in bringing them into the promise that he had for them. Joshua was the military general, right? Right? But do you know what Caleb's name meant? Dog. It's like, God, God, I'm looking for you. God, I'm looking for your promise. God, I'm looking for your word. Whatever. You know, was that you, God? Is today the day, God, that your promise is going to come about? Is today the day where you're going to fulfill everything that you spoke to me? I'm going to posture my heart accordingly. And though there was a generation that they had to put up with for 40 years until they all died out because of their unbelief, Joshua and Caleb, Caleb at 80 years old, was on the precipice of the promised land, and he says, I'm as strong a day as I was 40 years ago when God first made that promise to me. Why? Because I've been posturing my heart day after day after day that God's going to come through. God's going to fulfill his word, and therefore, ultimately, I'm going to see that which he's promised me. And you know what he got to experience? The promise. The, no, no, no trick questions. The promised land. <laughs> and taking the promised land and the promised life of God because he postured his heart daily in such a manner. Everything foreshadowing that which ultimately would be fulfilled in Christ. So the question is, in this Advent season, will we have the right faith? Number two, will we have the right attitude? And then number three, will we rightfully allow Jesus to be Lord of our lives? Not just saying we believe his word, but doing what he said to do, to enter into his promises. Amen? Amen. C.S. Lewis, last quote, said this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there would be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find, and those who knock, it is opened. And God says, ultimately, it's a promise he's made to you. It's a promise he's made to me. So in what ways is the rule of God, which he said is in our midst, growing in our lives to actually enter into his promises this Advent season? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you so much for your good news to us. Thank you for your news that gives us the ability to not just see our present realities, but the soon and coming kingdom. And God, we're praying that today, Father, in any area of our lives where we've settled for less, that God, you would once again lift our eyes to you. And though there's a time of waiting, that you would give us a great hope and the promise of not just eternal life, but abundant life in you right here and right now. God, we pray that you would set us free from offense. We pray that you would set us free from even disappointment and the bitterness that grows in our hearts because of disappointment. And God, we pray that you would help us to not just believe what you say, but do what you say that we might enter into your promises, though it may tarry. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have communion. Um, during our uh, second worship song, right after our first song. So if you would, as the worship begins, you can rise to your feet and come down and get communion cups. There's one right here, basket right here. There's a basket over there. And we're going to worship together.